Welcome to Words of Grace, radio ministry of Elder Ben Winslet, pastor of the Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. We invite you to stay tuned to today's broadcast. Our broadcast today is entitled, We Believe in Preservation. It's our privilege to have you in our listening audience today, and we pray that God is richly blessing you. I'm thankful for the feedback that we've received as of late, particularly about this present series that we've been undertaking on our Articles of Faith, the things that we hold to be true, the most fundamental notions that we affirm and consider to be non-negotiable. I'm always glad to hear from you as it encourages me that this ministry is being utilized by God to bless His people. So if you haven't taken the time lately to send me a note that you're listening, I would encourage you to do that. Send me a message, let me know that you're out there, and be sure to include by what means it is that you're tuning in. If you listen on a radio station, include that radio information. If you listen to our podcast, please include that. And if you listen via the Grace Alone radio streaming service, please include that in your note. I always enjoy hearing from you. You can find a variety of ways to contact us at our church website, which is flintriverpbc.org. Again, that is flintriverpbc.org. The easiest of those ways being to simply send me an email. As you know, we're presently considering the standard statement of faith, what we call the Articles of Faith, of historic Baptist churches in America, but also primitive Baptist churches of today. Now, in this series, we're considering our own statement of faith, the statement of faith that is held by Flint River Primitive Baptist Church, and this dates to and before the early 1800s. Specifically with our church, this document dates back to 1808, and it was the Statement of Faith of the Elk River Association, and you can find this Statement of Faith in churches all through the Southeast. And we're also comparing it to a slightly more modern statement, the one held by my old home church, Ebenezer Primitive Baptist Church in Shelby County, Alabama. This church dates back to 1868. And by the way, if you're tuning in to Words of Grace today from central Alabama, as many of you perhaps are, you might consider visiting Ebenezer for Sunday morning worship sometime. They'd love to have you, and you can find more information about their church at their website, EbenezerPBC.org. Our doctrine that is up for consideration today is that of the preservation of the saints. Sometimes this is called the perseverance of the saints. And this comes from Statement 8 in our Articles of Faith here at Flint River. This article reads, We believe that the saints shall be preserved in grace and never fall finally away. In the other variation, dating to 1868, that which I just read for you is the statement we adopted in 1808, but this statement that dates to 1868, the statement was, as it often is, tagged on to the statement before, which was the subject of last week's broadcast. So this statement, preserved in grace and never finally fall away, actually is attached to the end of the sentence that we used as the subject matter on last week's broadcast about the effectual call. And that statement reads as follows. We believe that God's elect shall be effectually called, 
regenerated and sanctified by the Holy Ghost and shall be preserved in grace and never finally fall away. What I've noticed in these older articles of faith is that they will often divide some of these doctrines up into two separate articles rather than linking them together in one. But on this broadcast, we will consider what it means to be preserved in grace. Now, a moment ago, I made the statement that this doctrine is sometimes referred to the preservation of the saints as the perseverance of the saints. I'm going to give you just a little bit of a caveat on this up front. In many articles of faith that I have read in church minutes and association minutes on church websites and in history books, the word persevere was used rather than preservation. So it would say persevere in grace rather than be preserved in grace. And sometimes it really is a toss-up as to which one of these two words is used. Now, I would submit to you that they mean the exact same thing in intent. But in recent decades, we've shied away from using that term among our churches, the term persevere, because of the popularity of a notion called lordship salvation. Adherents of lordship salvation teach that to really, really be saved, to truly be saved— You have to accept Jesus as your Lord, meaning that if you're not submitting to his lordship in every single aspect of your life, then you really weren't saved to begin with. And as we say, every aspect of your life, they mean every aspect of your life. What you think about, what you read, what you watch on television, the way that you spend your time, the way that you spend your money. And if you really wanted to be legalistic and dogmatic about it, it would have reference to what you eat, how much you eat, the way that you glance at a random stranger in a store. You have to submit to his lordship in every aspect of your life, according to proponents of this idea, or you weren't really saved. That's why it has come to be known as lordship salvation. You only have salvation, according to adherents of that, if you submit to his lordship in every area. And so as a byproduct of that, if you're not continually growing in holiness, you were never really saved to begin with. If you fall into sin, they would say, You must have been a false professor, because if you fell into sin, certainly you weren't really born again to begin with. This debate really centers on how much of a difference the new birth makes in a person. That's what this debate is at its core, the effects of the new birth, something that we would refer to perhaps as sanctification. Now, to be very clear, and listen to me carefully, the new birth makes a real, permanent, vital change in a person. You are not the same after the new birth than you were before. You are born again, you are quickened, resurrected, you are translated from darkness to light, and you are a new creature in Christ Jesus. That makes a change in a person's life. Your hard and stony heart is taken away, a heart of flesh is given. The laws of God are written upon your heart, as we read in Hebrews chapter 8, and you know God, according to John chapter 17 and Hebrews chapter 8. That's a pretty big difference. That makes a change. You have a new nature that you did not have before. But at the same time, and again, listen to me very carefully, we're not automatically going to be super saints necessarily, and at the same time, the nature of the flesh The nature of Adam is not eradicated in us. We continue to have that nature until we either die 
or we are glorified. And because of that, we have to put to death every day that old man. We have to put on the new man and put off the old man. We have to follow Christ and walk after him instead of following Adam and walking after him in our flesh. But this is something we're exhorted to do and not something that we're automatically going to do. You, as a born-again person, have two natures, and whichever nature you walk in, whichever nature you feed, whichever nature you are endeavoring to grow, that is the nature that is going to be dominant in your life. I wish that I could tell you that we will never have problems with sin again after the new birth. We're going to automatically get more and more holy, and we don't even have to worry about it, but that's simply not the case. It's a constant battle throughout the rest of our lives, and so we can say with Paul I do things that I don't want to do. I do things that I hate. I don't do things that I want to do and things that I love. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? If Paul had that experience, then certainly you and I are going to have struggles with the flesh and struggles with sin in this life. And sometimes those struggles get the best of us. Sometimes they can even take our lives. Another problem with lordship salvation is that it tends towards either depression among those who are honest about themselves and their frailties and their sin problems, or it leads to a sort of Phariseeism and a judgy spirit among those who are so delusional as to believe that they're actually holier than other people. It also robs God's people of their assurance, because rather than feeling secure in Christ as believers in Him, they worry about their eternal state. Now, please hear me. Assurance is the doctrine of assuring God's people. There's a reason we call assurance assurance. It's not the doctrine of skepticism, but it is the doctrine of assurance. The gospel brings life and immortality to light, and when you believe it, you are identified as a child of God. And so if you love Jesus and you believe in his word— then you're a child of God, or you would not love Jesus, and you would not believe in his word. Again, from last week, those that believe the words that we preach have everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but are passed from death unto life. That's why they receive the message. False professors like Judas Iscariot, or I would argue Simon Magus, do exist. Simon the sorcerer, the founder of Gnosticism, who claimed to be God incarnate and persecuted Christians after that encounter with the apostles in Acts chapter 8. But people such as that are pretty obviously unregenerate and tend to out themselves as the wolves in sheep's clothing that they really are. We ought to be worried about false prophets who are inwardly ravenous wolves, as Jesus taught, But at the same time, we don't want to use that teaching to go around and cause God's people to fear. To God's people, the message is, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith the Lord. Your warfare is accomplished. That's the purpose of the gospel ministry. If people come and they hear my preaching at church, and an auditorium full of people leave that place worrying that they're not really children of God, then I have failed in my work as a gospel preacher, and I ought to be ashamed of myself. So regarding that word persevere, all I will say further about it is that it means when we say it, that we persevere in grace, which is God's unmerited favor. Simply put, we stay in grace if we are in grace. If you have ever been in God's grace, then forever will you endure in God's grace and there is no taking you out of His grace. 
you are forever in God's unmerited favor, safely and securely. When we say persevere in grace, that's what we mean. It is also used interchangeably and synonymous in our statements of faith and preaching with the phrase that they shall not finally fall away. And if you doubt me on that, consult enough Articles of Faith from Association Minutes, and you'll find where some include one or the other, but not both. That's what they're communicating to us. That's what they mean when they use either of those terms. To persevere in grace means that you shall not finally fall away. And that word finally is very important there because we do fall many times in this life, but ultimately, but eventually, we will be with God in glory. We shall not finally fall away. So to us, to persevere means to remain in a gracious state, a born-again state, and praise God, you and I cannot become unborn again. But we do not mean to imply with this word that we will always continue in some sort of super-saint-like state of holy behavior. No, Lord, I believe, but help thou mine unbelief. The Bible is full of good people who fell to Satan's devices, men like Samson who fell to the lustful seduction of Delilah, or men like David, the man after God's own heart, who lusted after Bathsheba and committed adultery with her, eventually committed murder to cover up his adultery. The Bible is full of people who know God, but fall into the devices of Satan, who goes about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And believe me, if he can devour you, he's going to devour you. He will do everything he can to destroy you because he hates you, because he hates your Lord. I could point to the Corinthians who were yet carnal, and so Paul could not speak unto them as unto mature, but as unto babes, needing milk and not meat. I could point you to the church of Laodicea that was lukewarm. They were apathetic, and Christ was going to spew them out of his mouth. The church at Ephesus had left their first love, their fervor for Christ, and replaced it with some sort of traditionalistic formalism, and were at risk of losing their candlestick, but they were not at risk of losing their eternal life. What did Jesus say to the church at Laodicea? As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Laodicea was beloved of Christ, but Christ was not going to endure their apathy. And so as a church, they would be spewed out of his mouth in the sense that that church would lose their blessings. They would lose their candlestick. They would lose their identity. They would no longer have the blessings of the fellowship of Christ. We all, as believers in Christ, should take heed lest we fall. So let's look at this a piece at a time. We believe that the saints shall be preserved in grace. Now, as we emphasized last week on the broadcast, we believe that God's elect shall be called and regenerated and sanctified. That gives us the subject that we're dealing with, the people that we're talking about. Here, we believe that the saints shall be preserved in grace. The saints. To be a saint means that you are a sanctified person. You've been sanctified by the Spirit. We are to sanctify ourselves in a practical sense as we purge out unprofitable behaviors and affections. But as it relates to this particular statement, the saints shall be preserved, we mean those who have been born again. And you find this definition of saints in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul writes to those who are called to be saints. And so, to tie in last week's message, if you have been called of God, 
then you are a saint by definition, 1 Corinthians 1-2. And I would just point out the mess that the church at Corinth was, and yet they were called to be saints. They were a church. They would, according to Paul, be confirmed unto the end blameless as they wait for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. They would be blameless in the day of Christ, though they were not without blame in their own personal private lives or their behavior as a collective church. And yet they were called to be saints. They were sanctified. They would be confirmed unto the end, blameless in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's amazing. That is amazing. This church was full of carnal people who, though they knew the Lord, they were spiritually immature, they were factioning, they were getting drunk at communion, there were people who were committing adultery, and the rest of them were glorying in it. It was an outright mess. And worse than all of that, they had a heresy denying the resurrection of the body at the end of time. This church was a mess. But this church was also called to be saints, a church, a real church, full of people who would be confirmed unto the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Well, verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 1, because God is faithful, by whom you were called unto the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what we're talking about today. Despite our failures, despite our sin issues, despite the nature of the flesh, we will be confirmed blameless in the day of Christ because of God's faithfulness, not because of our own. The saints shall be preserved in grace. We shall be preserved in grace. Simply put, once in grace, we stay in grace. And again, what is the definition of God's grace? God's unmerited favor. Favor you have in His sight, favor you have with Him that you did not deserve, that you did not earn. It's unmerited. This is something that is all of God and not of us. So let's review some things that we looked at over the past few weeks from Romans chapter 8. God the Father, according to Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, foreknew us and predestinated us. He set our destiny beforehand to be adopted, conformed to the image of Christ. God the Son justified us on the cross. God the Spirit called us from death and sin to life in Christ. If God the Father predestinated you, then God the Son justified you. If God the Son justified you, then God the Spirit called you from death and sin to life in Christ. And if you are predestinated, justified, and called, if God predestinated, justified, and called you, well, you're going to be glorified. You will be raised in glorified bodies. And I share that just to emphasize the fact that if you are in one of these brackets here, the predestinating bracket, the justifying bracket, the calling bracket— you're in all the other brackets as well, all the way to glory, and this is the doctrine of eternal security. You are secure in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to emphasize this doctrine of preservation, the preservation of the saints today from two perspectives, the perspective of our lives here and the perspective of eternity. Number one, as it relates to your life here and the spiritual life that you have been given by Christ. You're standing as a born-again, newly-born person in Christ. And remember from last week, this means you're born again. It means that you have birth from a different source, born from above. It means you are quickened. You have been raised from death and sin to life in Christ. You're the product of the miracle of the resurrection of the soul. You've been translated from darkness unto light, 
and you're a new creation in Christ. As a new creature in Christ Jesus, created unto good works, whichever passage you want to look at, you are a new creature in Christ Jesus. Think of all of those metaphors or word pictures for our salvation that we considered last week. If this applies to you, then you will never fall from this state of spiritual life. If you're born again, if you're quickened, if you're translated, if you're a new creature in Christ, you will never fall from this state of spiritual life. Why? Why will you never fall from this state of spiritual life? Because when you are given eternal life, this intimate John 17 heart knowledge of God, this life is by definition eternal. It can never end. It can never be lost. It can never die. Think about that word eternal and all that communicates to us. God is eternal because God is eternal from everlasting to everlasting. The only eternal God, the only true God, because he's eternal, we know that he will never end. But being the eternal God who inhabits eternity from everlasting to everlasting, he extends from before creation to after to the vanishing point in either direction. He is timeless from everlasting to everlasting. He has no beginning. He will have no end. He gives unto us this quality of life that we call eternal life. And because he gives us this quality of life that we call eternal life, we have the quantity of life that never ends as well. He sparks within us life that will never come to an end. Because you are given eternal life, by definition, this life is eternal. That's why it is eternal life. It can never end, it can never be lost, and it can never die. Now, I'll share with you just a couple of statements to prove that, as we have done through this series. We don't believe what we believe because we simply make it up, but we look to the Scriptures for what we believe. In the book of John, chapter 10, Jesus says in verse 28, And I give unto them his sheep eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. I give unto them eternal life. We have been given eternal life by Christ. In John chapter 17, Jesus says to his Father in prayer, As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. To know God is to have eternal life. To have eternal life is to know God. The Spirit of his Son is sent into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, you now know him if you are born again. And All of his covenant sons, according to Hebrews 8, all of his sons and daughters, all of his people shall know him from the least to the greatest, and they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest, because this is something that God himself does. This is a teaching that God will do to his people. As it relates to your spiritual life here, throughout your physical pilgrimage through this world, this eternal life will never end because it is, by definition, eternal. You never lose it. I think the most succinct phrase affirming this in the Bible is Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, in which the Apostle Paul says that he is confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. If God has begun a work in you, God will continue to perform that work in you, and because of that you will be blameless in the second coming of Christ. And number two, 
The second context or perspective of this that I want to share is in regards to eternity itself. While we remain spiritually alive once we are born again, we will also be preserved all the way unto glory. God will, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23, preserve you body, soul, and spirit. Now, this is very comforting to know because our bodies will eventually, if the Lord tarries, our bodies will die and they will turn to dust. And yet he will preserve us, body, soul, and spirit, blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those bodies in the ground, they are also going to be preserved. Even though they turn back to dust, he will resurrect those bodies, but they will be raised up, glorified, conformed to the image of Christ. Our bodies turn back to dust, but in God's time they will be raised and glorified. God bought us body, soul, and spirit, so he will have us body, soul, and spirit. This is what Christ taught in the book of John chapter 6. You know that I love to reference John 17, John 10, and John 6, if you listen to Words of Grace. John 6 is one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. Jesus says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing. Did you catch that? I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. Preservation applies to us here in this world, but it also has application to us being with God in glory because we're preserved unto something. We're preserved unto the second coming of Christ, blameless. He will raise us up again at the last day. This brings us to the last clause from the article of faith that we're considering today. We will be preserved in grace, and we shall, quote, never fall finally away. Once in grace, because we are preserved by God in His grace— We shall never fall from this gracious state. What did Jesus say of his sheep in John chapter 10? Did you catch what he said in verse 28? They are clutched securely in his nail-pierced hands. And if you continue reading, even in his father's hands, and none can pluck them out of his father's hand. I'll close our broadcast today with a simple reading of the latter portion of Romans chapter 8. And as I read, I want you to ask yourself this simple question. What can take us from God? Now, if you just paid attention to what I said from John chapter 10, you know that no one or nothing can take us from the hand of God. None can pluck us from his hand. But I want you to ask the question, what can take us from God as I read this passage of Scripture, this beloved passage of Scripture? What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. 
For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The answer to that question, what can take us from God, is absolutely nothing. Again, I'm Ben Winslet, thanking you for listening to Words of Grace today, inviting you to write. Let me know that you've received the broadcast and also to tune in again next week at this time. Until then, may the Lord's richest blessings be yours, is my prayer. If you enjoy the messages you hear on Words of Grace, consider this your invitation to visit a Primitive Baptist Church in your community. An online directory is available at marchtozion.com. Copies of this and other broadcasts are available for download on iTunes and on our website. And finally, Words of Grace is a listener-supported program. To contact us, address your correspondence to... Words of Grace Radio, 641 Moontown Road, Brownsboro, Alabama, 35741. Or visit us online at flintriverpbc.org.